Welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. Today's episode is less scripted, less polished, rustic, if you will. Grab a chair and your drink of choice and get ready to hear all about the Nazis. It's unfiltered soldiers. Hello and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. Happy New Year! I hope it was a good one for you. hope you're not still nursing a hangover because it's been like three days and you may want to look into that. Okay, so today's the third Unfiltered Soldiers episode. If you don't know what these are yet, I'm going to inform you. These are unstructured, no music, minimal editing. All I have is an outline, a beer, and a couple of books in my left hand I'm going to check for figures and dates and stuff. Uh, The beer is a Blind Pirate Blood Orange IPA from Monday Night Brewing in Atlanta, Georgia. It's actually really good. I'm pretty impressed. I don't think you can make an orange beer, but they did a pretty decent job, and I like it. And the books are uh, Adam Tuza, Wages of Destruction, The Making and Breaking of the Nazi Economy, David Glantz and Jonathan House, When Titans Clashed, How the Red Army Stopped Hitler, Revised and Expanded Edition. I hunted this one down because I wanted the Revised and Expanded Edition because I'm a nerd. Okay, so what these are is these are just me talking about a topic I feel like talking about, something I want to get off my chest, a method to get content to you guys faster or breathing space in my busy schedule because it takes a lot of effort to do the main episodes and even the short rounds because I do research. I do, I write them out. I edit them. I get this music going. It is a little bit of effort, so this is much easier. But today's episode is going to focus on one of the most overdone, overexposed, obsessed about topics in modern history. And because of such a big portion of popular history, there's a lot of stuff that people get wrong about them. A lot of myths that need clearing up. I'll be honest with you guys. Totally honest. This is like the third attempt I've made at recording this because all the other attempts went to like four hours. So I'm not going to do that. I've narrowed my focus. It was originally Nazi myths. I was going to talk about myths about the Nazis. But instead... I crunched that down. We're going to focus solely on the Nazi military, the German military, the Wehrmacht. And this also includes today, it also includes the Waffen-SS. Now, there's a lot of stuff to talk about with Hitler, the Nazis, the Nazi political, economic, all of that. But I'm not going to get into that too much. I spent the first 30 minutes and most of those original attempts just talking about what Hitler believed and what Hitler thought. Because people get that wrong all the time. But that's a topic for a different day. Today we're going to focus on myths about the German military in World War II. Wehrmacht myths. I got a list of myths. I'm going to go through them. Because this is the internet, right? You hopefully listen to this on the internet. But they love numbered lists. You know, there's like 20 different articles a day I see. You know, five things you didn't know about Taylor Swift. Which I read, obviously. But still, my point is. It's a list of a few myths we're going to go through. A few misconceptions people have about the military of Nazi Germany. I do have a content warning to get out there. These are the Nazis. So I'm going to talk about genocide a little bit, not in crazy detail, but I'll be discussing some pretty horrific stuff by the by. This isn't an essential episode. And if you don't feel like listening to the Nazis again, you can go on your merry way if you like. I have plenty of other content that's going to talk about all this random obscure stuff back in my you know catalog and coming up. But be forewarned. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There's some not dark and bloody stuff going on. Especially today, as I mentioned. The podcast remains PG-13. The language is clean. The content is not. There is no source post today. It's unfiltered soldiers. I've mentioned the books I have. And if I use a book, I'll mention it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, mistakes, 
They're all me. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people, mostly very bad people, who still, I guess, should not be unknown or at least misknown soldiers. So let's bust some Nazi myths. Myth number one, the German economic miracle. I said I wasn't going to talk about economics too much, but this one's so pervasive, I kind of have to talk about it. I really do. Uh, this idea that Hitler came to power and fixed Germany's economy. I see this all over the place. You know, maybe Hitler made some mistakes later on, but when he was in power, he fixed Germany's economy. About that. Okay, so, I think, well, the first argument right off is that Hitler was in power for 12 years. And when those 12 years were over, I would not say Germany's economy was in a great shape. <laughs> like, the, its cities were destroyed, it was occupied by multiple enemy armies, millions of its people were dead. I would not call this, overall, an economic success. Right? I mean, you can say, well, the first half of Hitler's, you know, the first half of Hitler's reign, he, he fixed the economy, and, you know, the second half, whatever, you know. But no, you can't just ignore the second half because the second half is a part where he drives Germany's economy into the ground and blackens its name for all eternity. So, yeah, Hitler fixed Germany's economy, even if he did. He did not. I'll get to that. But even if he did, eh, then he immediately ruined it. So what's, what's your point? But the second thing is that Hitler didn't really fix the German economy. Not really. Not, the Nazi government, when they took over in 1933, did not really fix the German economy. There's a few reasons for this. There's a few reasons for this myth. One of the big ones is that they like to claim they did. They And the Nazis had some of the best propaganda ministers, one of the best propaganda ministers, Joseph Goebbels, in human history. This is a man who could spin anything into making it look good for Germany somehow. Germany's losing the war, and most of Germany's military is still convinced that they can win. That's Goebbels at work. Man, he could turn anything, any bad development into you know, something good. So the German economy, the idea that Hitler fixed the German economy, is exactly what the Nazis said for years. It was a result of Nazi propaganda. Of course they wanted to look like they were fixing the economy. Now, there is something to get out of the way. The German economy did recover from the Great Depression after 1933. But here's a couple of qualifiers. Number one, uh, the German economy had already started to recover when Hitler took power in 1933. The Weimar government, during its last couple of years, the pre-Hitler government, the democracy that Hitler overthrew, well, kind of democracy, but they had already started programs of economic recovery, and it had started as early as 1931. The economy had started to recover, so Hitler was sort of taking credit for the, what the previous administration did. Uh, second... Germany's economy did not was not an incredible recovery. It wasn't an unusual recovery compared to what other European countries were going through at the time. Other European economies were also recovering. Some of them recovered slower than Germany. Some of them recovered faster than Germany. America, in particular, recovered slower than Germany. But there are some multiple reasons for that, and a lot of them have to do with uh, economic monetary policy I'm not going to get into. But but my point is that hit the German economy economic recovery after Hitler took power not only wasn't that incredible, but it also 
wasn't that unusual compared to other European countries, and it was started by the government before Hitler. But finally, the big thing about the German economic recovery in this myth is that the average German saw almost no improvement in his standard of living, his or her, after 1933. Because Hitler's economy was recovering, yes. But that's because they immediately ramped up military production to a stupid, insane amount. Like, before 1933, before Hitler, Germany's military spending was less than 1% of its GDP. Just so you know, if you don't know, that's a pretty good way to gauge how many resources a country is putting into its military. Not by absolute spending, but by percentage of GDP. Like North Korea, for instance, doesn't put that much money into its military because it doesn't have that much money to spend. But its military spending is an insanely high amount of its GDP because North Korea is North Korea. So Hitler cranks up his, G his mil military spending per GDP from like 1% to 20% immediately. And keep in mind, US military spending as a percentage of GDP today, it was supposed to be one of the you know most powerful militaries in the world, is 3.7%. We spend 3.7% of our GDP on the military. Ger Hitler just took it from 1% to 20%. That is an insane amount. There is the largest peacetime increase in military spending in the modern world. And it happened like almost overnight. Because Hitler didn't believe in recovering the economy for the economy's sake. Hitler wasn't out there being like, oh, I want to improve life for Germans. Hitler was like, we need to prepare for the race war. <laughs> because Hitler believed in crazy, crazy things. Uh, he believed in crazy things, but he implemented them logically. If you are Hitler, if you're Hitler, and you believe with all your heart that there is an international Jewish conspiracy trying to destroy Germany, and that you need to go to war, and that war is inevitable, and that you have to fight off international Jewish conspiracy. This is obviously cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. This, this, yeah, it's it's obviously BS. But if you believe that, if you really believe that, like Hitler did, then you're going to start getting ready for war. Nothing else matters. Only military preparation. And that's what recovered the economy. It wasn't social spending. It wasn't like FDR, like the... He wasn't like damming up the Tennessee River or the Civilian Conservation Corps. He wasn't putting out soup kitchens. That wasn't what Hitler was concerned about. Hitler was like, I'm a, I've, I just gained power. Let's get ready for war. Let's make a bunch of tanks and a bunch of planes and a bunch of guns and everything. Just ramping up military production. And this was not only not sustainable, like Hitler's economy almost fell apart several times because they did not have enough money to do this. Like they're not spending enough on... For instance, exports. Germany had to export, you know, stuff to get to bring in raw materials from outside Germany. If your balance of payments is bad, then you can't bring enough raw materials to keep doing the rearmament that you want to do. So there's multiple times when they had to crank back on the military production because it was literally crippling their economy. There's having a big military. Then there's, dude, your military is pretty big. Then there's your military might be too big to your military is so big, it's actively ruining your economy. And that's where Nazi Germany was at the end of Hitler's so-called economic miracle. <laughs> it's like, just, you can't just build up the military to the exclusion of everything else. There has to be stuff supporting that. But Hitler really, really believed that Germany had to prepare for this massive apocalyptic war that he was certain was coming. And this is kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. He was rearming for the war he was certain was coming. And this pretty much made that war inevitable because 
Germany did not has had a very limited economy. Germany lacked a lot of the resources they needed to really rearm the way they wanted to. They had no sources of oil, almost none. Uh, they had no sources of rubber. They had to import those. Uh, they tried to make them synthetically, but that was really expensive, resource-intensive, and it wasn't very productive. Um, Hitler had to basically hold the IG Farb and Chemical Company over a barrel to get them to make synthetic oil and rubber, because not only was it garbage, it wasn't profitable. Uh, Hitler, you know, there's this idea that Hitler was socialist, because it says National Socialist in his party title. No. But Hitler also wasn't a capitalist. He believed international finance was a tool of the Jew, so he was not a capitalist. Hitler was something else, not socialist, not communist, not capitalist. Hitler was entirely focused on the race war that he was certain was coming, so Germany needed to prepare for that race war. But this military spending was unsustainable, and Hitler believed in his heart that the only way for Germany to survive in the modern world, the only way for Germany to compete with giants like Rush like America especially, was to break out of the quote-unquote Jewish encirclement and get those resources he needed for war from other people. Germany didn't have enough resources on its own. Germany especially didn't have enough food or oil or even steel on its own. So Germany would have to expand and take those from other people. Hitler didn't choose between helping his people and arming the military, not in his mind. By arming the military, the Germans would expand, build an empire, and take the resources they needed for the German people. That was Hitler's entire thing. Building up the military was the only thing he cared about, and that almost drove his economy into pieces. And essentially, like, Hitler was forced into war, because if he didn't go to war, if he didn't use his military that he just spent his entire economy building, then the German economy was going to collapse, and the Allies were going to catch up because the Allies were rearming too. They were building weapons too. They were looking over at Germany and being like, that doesn't look good, guys. And they started to build up their own weapons. Germany had a very temporary advantage in weaponry compared to other countries. And if they didn't use it soon, that advantage would go away. So Hitler's economy was crashing and, and his military advantage was fading. And so he decided to strike earlier than his generals wanted. And that's what started helped start World War II. Hitler deciding to strike early before he really, before his generals really wanted to. This made his generals very upset at certain points. But that's the thing. That's the thing. Hitler didn't recover his economy. Hitler had nothing to do with the German economic recovery. What Hitler did was pump so much money into the military that the economy was going to collapse if he didn't go to war. And he did go to war, and we know what happened. So, no. On the whole, I would not call this an economic success on Hitler's part. Okay, myth number two, the myth of Blitzkrieg. The Germans did not use the word Blitzkrieg. They did not use that word. That wasn't what the Germans called it. That was something that the British and American presses called what the Germans were doing. But the Germans did not use the word Blitzkrieg. Okay, they use it a couple of times, but they always put quotes around it, like the so-called Blitzkrieg when they were talking about what British and Americans were saying about their own way of war. So there's this image, right? There's this major image of um, of the Germans being like, a, you know, all the panzers, the, the, those first few German attacks of World War II are these lightning attacks with these panzer columns and these planes and all this high-tech equipment. And 
the idea is that the Germans started using the technology. They built a new way of war based around this new technology of tanks and aircraft. Now, that's not true. See, what the Germans were doing looked new. It looked new to other people, but it was really very old. See, the Germans had a, what Robert Satino, Dr. Robert Satino, one of my favorite historians of World War II, calls a German way of war. That is a cultural way of war. Culture, eh? it's coming back. It always comes back. But a cultural way of war that revolved around large-scale aggressive attacks as early and fast as possible to defeat the enemy in as, quick, as quickly as possible. That was the German way of war. And their term for this tended to be uh, Bewegungskrieg, or maneuver warfare, or Auftragstaktik, or mission tactics. Essentially, you give the generals on the ground, you give them the mission, and you send them out to accomplish it. And this created a force that was very flexible, very aggressive, very fast, and liked to surround and destroy their enemies. They always tried to win their war within the first few weeks of the war. This was not a World War II thing. This was not new in World War II. The Germans have been trying to do this for centuries. Ever since the Germany was just a tiny little country called Prussia, led by a king named Frederick the Great, who always tried to win his wars within the first few weeks by a shocking attack and a rapid, decisive battle. All the Germans were doing was just taking tanks and planes and just grafting them on to very old traditions and styles of warfare that they've been using for a long time. This was not just, you know, tactical, because famously, the German commanders were very aggressive, very flexible, very fast. They always reacted quickly. German, that, this goes for lieutenants and captains, and this goes to generals. This was a common culture of war that favored decisive, rapid action, subordinates taking charge and attacking as fast as they can. Extremely aggressive way of war. Much more aggressive than almost any other country at the time. And this is what gave the Germans a lot of really early on decisive power in almost every war they fought. The Germans always start really strong. They always start really fast and aggressive and dangerous. And the problem is, this is the way they didn't just fight battles, but the way they fought wars. The problem with Blitzkrieg what we call Blitzkrieg, I'm going to call it so-called Blitzkrieg throughout this because it's not the correct term, but it's the term that you use immediately. The problem with this German way of war in general, because they've been doing this for centuries, like this is not a new thing. This is what they try to do multiple times. This is what they try to do in World War I, is that they throw everything. They throw everything they have into that first punch. And if that first punch doesn't knock the enemy out, they're in trouble. Every single time. We see this every single time. If you can withstand the first German attack, you're probably going to survive. This happened in, for instance, World War I, 1914. Germany throws 90% of their army, everything they have, in one massive knockout punch against France. It doesn't work. Germany is bogged down in trench warfare for the next four years, and they are slowly worn down to cinders. They lose the war. This happened to Frederick the Great back in the 1750s, before the American Revolution even. Frederick attacks Austria. He wins some victories, but then gets stopped and driven back. He doesn't win in his first punch. If the Germans win in their first punch, they usually win. If they don't win their first punch, they're probably not going to win. And 
Blitzkrieg was not that new. It was a very old style of warfare. It was just, hey, we got new technology. We can still do the same things we've been doing, but we can do them faster now. We can do them with more destruction now. It was like if America, if the United States Army tomorrow got a new tank that was lighter and faster and tougher, the United States wouldn't change how it fought wars, not fundamentally. They would just change, tweak it. They would just tweak the way they fought wars. And that was what the Germans did. We have the tanks, we have planes, we have motorization, we have all this stuff. We're going to tweak our old styles of warfare, put the new technology on, and see how they do. And, of course, it worked really well. Because what happened was this traditional German way of war sort of coincided with this new technology. And they coupled to create a system that was very effective in the short term. Short term. Short term. Because if the war went on too long, the Germans were going to be in trouble, no matter who they were fighting. Germany got lucky. They got... Uh, they ever. For the first couple of years of World War II, every time they launched that first punch, the first punch worked. And one of the things I think people don't understand about World War II in general, the most shocking thing that happened in World War II, all of World War II, the most shocking thing that happened, like the most surprising thing was not Pearl Harbor or even Hiroshima or even any of that or D-Day or any of that stuff. It was the fall of France. Because no one expected France to fall that quickly. France had lasted for four years in World War I. They had lasted for four years. And when the Germans attacked France and, and Britain, allied with France, and the Belgium and Netherlands, all these places, the Germans were outnumbered in tanks. They were outnumbered in planes. They were outnumbered in all this modern equipment that supposedly created the Blitzkrieg. What happened was a crazy coincidence where the French plan somehow worked perfectly into the hands of the German plan. The German plan wasn't even the original plan. The German generals were very pessimistic about the invasion of France. They defeated Poland pretty easily. Yeah, they expected that. Everybody expected that. But they looked over at France and they're like, huh, that's, that's going to be tough. That's going to be the tough one. France and Britain last time had ground the Germans to pieces. They'd destroyed the German army pretty much. The Americans had arrived to help at the end, but by the time the Americans arrived, the German army was already pretty much done. So the Germans were like, this is going to be the tough one. But the plan, the, um, the plan for the invasion of France worked amazingly. Like, no one expected it to work this well. I mean, you know, when Germans defeat France in six weeks, that nobody can believe it. The British can't believe it. The French obviously can't believe it. Uh, the Americans and Soviets were both surprised. Like, Stalin's cigar fell out of his mouth. FDR is like, what? Um, the Germans couldn't believe it. The Germans like, we, we won? Like, people underestimate, people take this for granted, the fall of France in 1940. People take this as the, the, the inevitable thing of World War II. This was one of the most surprising, least inevitable things of World War II. Um, nine times out of ten, I think... France and Britain beat Germany, and they forced them back. It was a complete shock when France fell. And the Blitzkrieg myth is partially also the fact that the Germans' propaganda comes back again. The Germans, all the German newsreels of their army in World War II always show the tanks, always show the planes, always show all this high-tech equipment. But the vast, vast majority of the German army throughout World War II was not mechanized, was not even motorized. 
every attack the Germans launched in World War II, there's like a few panzer divisions. Like, I think in the invasion of the Soviet Union, uh, the panzer divisions were about 15 to 20% of the German army. The other 80%, they were on foot or pulled by horses. The German army used enormous numbers of horses in World War II. The vast majority of the German army marched into Russia like Napoleon had, like anybody else had, on foot or on horseback or with horses pulling all their gear. Like, because Germany did not have the automotive industry to make that many trucks. They didn't have the, uh, the supplies. They didn't have the oil. They didn't have the rubber to fuel that many trucks. Oil would be a constant problem for Germany throughout the war. So this vision of like, the German army is this super mechanized, super advanced, you know, you know, motorized force. Not true. The vast majority of their army were just on foot or on horseback. Extremely non-modern. I mean, in a, uh, the, only moder- the only fully motorized army in World War II at the beginning of the war was the British army. The only motorized army in the world. The Americans still had large cavalry divisions in 1939. They got rid of those in 1940 after they saw what happened to France. They're like, oh, oh, oh no. But, um, of course, that's a tangent. Um, okay, tangent, small tangent. Uh, there were American generals, like General John Kerr was the head of the cavalry branch, and he was salty, so salty about the fact that they got rid of, uh, they got rid of horse cavalry. And he was still arguing, like, you know, there will come a day when the horse is once again like the primary vehicle of war. He was saying crap like that in 1944, <laughs> like in 1944. But the German army is still mostly on foot and mostly horse-drawn by the end of the war. In When the Allies land on D-Day and they're landing thousands and thousands of trucks and thousands and thousands of tanks, the German, the German infantry divisions are still marching around with, you know, horse carts. They're like one... There's a, um, the German infantry companies. There's there's a table organization. I've seen this because I'm a huge nerd. And there is a job. One of the positions in a German infantry company is as the groom for the officer's horse. You still have grooms for your horses in 1944 when America is just making so many trucks it doesn't know what to and jeeps doesn't know what to do with them. Yeah. Those, those poor infantry divisions pulling their artillery with horses have no place in this war. You probably should have given up by then, Germany. Okay. Blitzkrieg, not a thing. And the German army, not as motorized as they thought. And the fall of France, totally unexpected. Not at all part of the master plan. Myth number three. Germany could have won if they did this. There's like three of these. Uh, Germany could have won if, you know... Hitler was stupid. Why didn't Hitler just do this? There's usually a reason why Hitler didn't just do this. But we'll get to that. Okay, so Germany could have won if. This is a favorite for alternate history nerds or people who are like, you know, why, did Hitler, why didn't Germany just do this easy thing? That would have been easy. Why didn't they do that? Okay, this usually revolves around one of three things they shouldn't have done or should have done. I'm going to go through each of them. Okay. Uh, myth number three, part A. Uh, Germany could have won if they invaded Britain. How? With what? Okay, okay. The German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, and the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, were nowhere near the match of the British Navy and Air Force, the Royal Navy, the Royal Air Force. Um, there's this big dramatic attempt where the German 
Luftwaffe tries to beat the Royal Air Force in the Battle of Britain. This is the famous Blitz. This is all that, you know, the their finest hour, these brave British pilots fighting up against the German Air Force. And it was very dramatic, and the British people were extremely brave and courageous in it. But looking at the hard facts, Germany was not going to win the Battle of Britain. They had lost a third of their aircraft taking France. Uh, the German Air Force was not built for uh, strategic warfare strategic bombing, anything like the Americans and British would later do to, to Germany and Japan. Uh, the German Luftwaffe was just not prepared for this conflict. And the, the, the Kriegsmarine was a joke. The, the German na- surface Navy was abysmal. It was a couple of ships and they lost most of their light ships taking Norway. Like, like what are the Germans going to do? Oh, we're going to do an amphibious landing with what Navy, with what landing craft. If we know anything from military history, it's that amphibious landings are really, really hard. And the Germans were in no way prepared for it. Like not even remotely prepared for it. Oh, so we'll just achieve air superiority. and We'll bomb the British into rubble. Okay. That's not going to happen. The British are outproducing you in both aircraft and in pilots. Um, and the, you know, Germany could have invaded Britain if they had a better navy and a better air force, which they didn't, so it didn't matter. Again, like you only have Germany only had so many resources to put into both these services. They put most of their resources into the army because the army was the A, the thing they were good at, and B, the thing that was gonna beat Poland and France and eventually the Soviet Union. Of course they did. They put a lot of resources into the Air Force, but they could never outproduce America, even not even Britain, let alone America. So, no, the Germans could not have taken Britain. It was not feasible, not even remotely. It would take years of preparation to, to invade and capture and take over England. Not going to happen. Oh, the Germans could have won if... They gave more resources to Rommel in North Africa, and so he could invade the Middle East. So... The Germans send a small German force down to North Africa, Libya, and Egypt under Erwin Rommel, the famous Desert Fox, so that he can uh, fight off the British from Egypt. Rommel was extremely bad at outrunning his supply lines all the time. Uh, there's The Germans could not supply Rommel. It took too many trucks, too many resources, too much gasoline. The Germans did not have enough gasoline to be doing all this. And Rommel was at the end of like a hundred, several hundred mile long supply line stretching across the desert. And you know what else the British still have? The Royal Navy and Air Force. So they couldn't really supply him by sea. Supplying him by land meant trucks traveling over hundreds of miles. There were never enough tanks. It was just not logistically feasible for Rommel, even with more troops, to defeat the British and take over the Middle East. It's not going to happen. Like, look, people who say... And I've seen actual historians like Bevan Alexander say this, like they sh- the Germans should have taken over the Middle East. It's not logistically possible. People have done this math. Rommel was a decent general, but he moved too far, too fast, completely outran his supply lines. We'll talk more about that. Germans, the German loved to outrun their supply lines. We'll talk about that later, but the German logistics were garbage throughout the war. The German supply services, maintenance services, Garbage. Absolute garbage. They, they were completely disorganized. But, you know, when Rommel takes the city of Tobruk in 1942 in Libya, 
and Hitler makes him a field marshal. Rommel supposedly said something like, oh, I wish you'd given me another Panzer division. You can't supply the Panzer divisions you have, Rommel. There's not enough fuel. There's not enough trucks to run those several hundred miles from Tripoli all the way over to Egypt to supply you. Rommel outruns his supply lines, gets pinned down by the British at El Alamein, and uh, General Montgomery pounds him into a pounds him into a scrap heap, just nails him down with air power and just crushes him. Rommel's not going to reach the Middle East. Even if he did reach Egypt, even if he got went a few little bit longer and reached Egypt, the, he, he would reach it with like five tanks and the British would just destroy him. <laughs> that wasn't feasible. That was never in the cards logistically, as long as Germany did not have enough of a Navy or an Air Force to stop Britain, which they never did. And the third thing, Germany could have won if, Germany could have won if they didn't invade the Soviet Union. I see this one a lot. Hitler was doing good until he invaded Russia, but that was a stupid decision. That, you know, tell me you don't know much about Hitler without telling me you don't know much about Hitler. Hitler was always going to invade the Soviet Union. Hitler was always going to invade Russia. That was his entire plan. That was the thing he wanted to do. If you read Mein Kampf, and I don't recommend it, Mein Kampf is not only just um, not only evil, but it's also just boring. It's boring, surprisingly. Uh, it's just drudgery. Hitler's not a very good writer. <laughs> Who knew? Hitler's not literarily talented. But, uh, you know, Hitler, no J.K. Rowling Hitler was. But uh, so he, so you... Read Mein Kampf. There's two main points to Mein Kampf, and there's only really two points to Mein Kampf. They are uh, the Jews have an international conspiracy to destroy Germany, and to defeat the Jewish encirclement, Germany must create a land empire in the East. That's it. That's really those are really the two points of Mein Kampf. But uh, what a lot of people don't know, what a lot of people don't know, is that Hitler wrote a second book. It was not published in his lifetime. The manuscript was found after the war, but Hitler wrote a second book. And in this one, he explains why the invasion, inva- building the German Empire in the East wasn't just some cuckoo weird idea he had. See, Hitler was concerned with the thing that all of Europe had been concerned with throughout the 20th century. The economic story of the 20th century is the rise of America. America is the world's dominant economy. And Hitler believed that Germany's final boss, the final enemy they would need to defeat, the final uh, final puppet of the Jewish conspiracy was America. Like he's Hitler saw America as the final as their final enemy. He saw Franklin D. Roosevelt as literally, he said this in meetings, the Jewish chosen one. He FDR was the Jewish chosen one. <laughs> it was like Hitler saw FDR as his arch nemesis, and FDR was like, what? What are you talking about? But um, no, but seriously. So Hitler believed that to defeat America, Germany would have to become America. Germany would have to do to Russia what America had done to its Western territories. Hitler explicitly made this comparison multiple times. Germany will have to do to the East what America has done to the West to colonize and subdue and tame the local population and exterminate them. He did make that very clear. He was going to exterminate most of the people in Western Russia. Uh, he never got that far, but he wanted to. So that's the thing, though. It's like Hitler was going to invade the Soviet Union because he believed that was Germany's destiny. 
That was the only way Germany would have the resources and power to defeat the economic giant that was the United States. Hitler always had his eye on this. And Hitler was always going to invade Russia. And to be honest, from his point of view, if you if you really believed, if you really believed there was an international Jewish conspiracy trying to destroy Germany, if you believed this crazy, crazy, terrible thing, then his actions do make a little bit of sense. And the fact that Hitler almost did defeat the Soviet Union does make make that a valid strategy. So Hitler didn't invade the Soviet Union because he was stupid. I mean, he was stupid, but not not in that way. But Hitler was actually extremely intelligent in some ways, uh, ter- terrible, evil ways. Hitler believed that he had to gain the resources necessary to defeat the final boss of America. He had to gain the food, the oil, the steel, the raw metals, all this stuff to defeat America. And the only place to get this was from the Soviet Union. Germany would have to conquer and subdue the Soviet Union to compete with that bastion of Jewish capitalism, America. So this leads us right into myth number four. The Eastern Front wasn't that important. I understand a lot of people will know this is not true. Um, but I have to address it because when I was a teenager, 2006, 2007, I had a history teacher who straight up told me to my face, you know, told me all about D-Day, Pearl Harbor. And it's like, the Russians, well, they didn't do that much. Absolutely not true. A hundred percent not true. If anything, the Eastern Front of World War II, the Germans versus the Soviet Union, was the most important front of World War II, was the most important series of events of World War II. And I think people often don't understand just how enormous, how massive, how destructive this war was. If you took out every other single part of World War II, if you took out D-Day, Pearl Harbor, the atomic bombs, all the other bombing, if you took out Italy, if you took out Iwo Jima and Okinawa, and all the Pacific, all of the Pacific, all of it, if you took out every other single part of World War II, the Eastern Front would be the most destructive war in human history. Still, bar none, by a long shot, by a massive long shot. Um, like seriously, Ger- the German army's back was broken on the Eastern Front. Uh, total German losses in World War II come out to about 11 million, of which 9 million fell in the East. There's entire German military cemeteries from World War II where you go go down the lines and every every single grave just says, Toten Osten, Toten Osten, Toten Osten, died in the East, died in the East, died in the East. The initial size of the Eastern Front, when the the war began, when Germany attacked the Axis, I should say the Axis, not Germany, because Germany attacked alongside the Finns, the Romanians, the Hungarians, and the Italians when they attacked the Soviet Union in June 1941. There were 3.8 million Axis troops, 3 million of which were German. And it's just, this is, this is huge. This is seven times the size of the active duty United States Army. Seven times the size of the active duty U.S. Army. The initial front was 1720 miles wide, 1720 miles wide, the length between northern Maine and southern Florida. It was a huge war, and it was just thousands of tanks, thousands of planes, millions of dead. It was savage. It was utterly inhuman how many people died in this conflict. I can't think of 
there's no other conflict in world history that comes close. Not even close. Civil War, drop, you know, drop in the ocean. World War One, almost there, but not close. Like, from the moment Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, June 22nd, 1941, Operation Barbarossa, the vast majority of Germany's army is fighting the Soviets. And they will continue to fight the Soviets. Uh, even when the Allies land in Normandy, most of the German army wasn't able to respond because they were fighting the Soviets. <laughs> I mean, and the Soviets were... They had a huge army. They Their army only got bigger with time. So by July 1943, I got a note here from uh, When Titans Clash by David Glantz and Jonathan House, uh, 3.9 million Axis troops versus 6.7 million Soviet troops. Guys, that's almost like 12 million people locked in combat. And millions of those will die by the end of the year. There'll be millions more taking their place. Less for the Germans because they're starting to run out of people very early and they their their manpower problems only get worse as time goes on. But, I mean, just how lethal this war was. You know who lost more men in World War II than America did? Freaking Romania. Romania lost more than the United States. All in the East. A Soviet division going into Stalingrad during the height of that battle could lose twice the number of men the U.S. lost killed in Iraq in a week. It was amazingly lethal. It was amazingly destructive. Just millions of people, millions of dead. And also there's the fact that Hitler launched this war explicitly as a racial war. He was sending out orders telling all his troops when they invaded Russia. This was a war of extermination, a war of annihilation. He aimed to conquer the Soviet Union, exterminate millions of its people to clear the way for German settlers. There's this, uh, there's this story from, I think, August 1941, when, uh, when the German generals are setting up administration in the occupied parts of Ukraine, and this guy arrives, the, Nazi, the, the new Nazi commissioner for Ukraine, uh, Eric Kalk, and uh, they're having a conference, you know, oh, Mr. Kalk, what, what are your plans for the Ukraine? And Kalk says, well, we're going to kill every male up over the age of 15 and bring in the SS studs to refertilize the population. The Germans intended to kill far more than they did. Like, if anybody ever says Hitler versus Stalin, you know, who was worse, Hitler or Stalin? Hitler. 100% Hitler. I don't even think about that for a second. Because Hitler killed more people than Stalin did, and Hitler was in power only a third of the time Stalin was in power. And get this, Hitler was getting started. Stalin got everything he wanted. We saw the worst case scenario of Stalin taking over. Hitler was getting warmed up. This was step one. The Holocaust was step one. He, he intended to kill millions more people than he did, and he killed mil, tens of millions of people. So much blood is on Hitler's hands, and Hitler was like, this is nothing. Wait till I get, wait till I get really started. So yeah, Hitler was worse. But no, the Eastern Front was the critical front of World War II, by a long shot. If the Germans had defeated the Soviet Union, if they had, I don't think much could have stopped them. Not even America. I mean, it's hard to see how Germany, how America D-Day is successfully launched if the entire German army is waiting for the United States, or the entire German Air Force. Because for most of the war, all of those resources were in the East. All the German army was, most of the German army was in the east. Most of the German air force was fighting the Soviet air force. 
And of course, by the end of the war, things are not going well. Uh, the Soviet army is just crushing the Germans in the East, and we'll talk a little bit about that in just a second. But seriously, the Eastern Front wasn't not important. The Eastern Front, the Soviet Union pulled the lion's share of the military power in defeating Germany. I don't want to overstate this, because not only did the British always pose a severe threat to Germany, uh, they continued to pose that throughout the war, the United States industrial capacity and economic power we helped the Soviets a lot. We gave them a lot of trucks. We gave them a lot of tanks. We gave them, but what people forget, like it's easy to look at the trucks, the tanks, the airplanes as the obvious symbols of lend-lease is what it was called. Um, the United States get lending supplies and equipment to all these allied countries. What's easy to overlook is the raw materials. Because when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, they, of course, at first, like the German way of war always does, they won a lot of victories at first. They just ripped the German, the Soviet military to shreds in the first few months, some of the largest battles in human history. Um, but they lost, the Soviets lost a lot of their big industrial centers and their core economic areas, a lot of their resources. America was shipping a lot of resources to the Soviets, including like raw materials, uh, food, rubber, tires, just the stuff you wouldn't think about because it's not in the video games or anything. Well, I, I give you guys more credit than that, but the stuff that wouldn't be immediately obvious as the critical war materials, the United States was sending the Soviet Union so many raw materials, and this enabled them to, for, it's, it's, I don't want to overstate either way. The two critical components were American aid and Soviet courage, Soviet determination, because Hitler badly underestimated the Soviets, badly underestimated the Soviets. It cost him the war. Uh, he underestimated the Soviets for a few reasons, and we're about to get into that. Because that is myth number five. The Germans could have defeated the Soviet Union if this thing happened. So there is Dr. Jonathan House, who wrote this excellent book, When Titans Clashed, with David Glantz, I have it in my right, left hand, has this has um, what he calls the three alibis. See, after World War II... The, uh, the Americans had all these German generals in, you know, in prison. And the G Americans went to the German generals like, hey, so how'd you guys do against the Soviets? Because we might have to fight those guys someday. And the German generals spun them a story. They well, we would have defeated the Soviets except for this or this or this. Now, of course, America's getting advice on how to fight the Soviets from the guys who absolutely failed to do that effectively, eventually. But the point is, the Americans... Got, we got a lot of our myths about the Soviet, the German-Soviet War from the German generals who were looking for excuses as to why they didn't defeat the Soviets. The German generals said, well, we would have defeated the Soviets except for what Dr. House calls the three alibis. So why didn't the Germans defeat the Soviets? According to the Germans, there are three reasons. They are Russian weather, Russian hordes, and stupid Hitler. Okay, so we'll, we'll tackle each of these because these are both all important because they're all part of the misconception Americans, a lot of folks in the West have about the German-Soviet War. Number one, uh, Russian winter. Oh, we would have defeated the Russians, but uh, the Russian winter defeated us. We weren't able to... Okay, guys. Okay, okay. First thing, people say don't invade Russia in the winter. No one invades Russia in the winter. No one has ever done that unless they were really prepared for it. The Mongols. The Mongols invade Russia in the winter and they won. But they were the Mongols. They were the exception. 
but no one invades Russia in the winter. What happens is, it happened to Napoleon, it happened to Hitler. People underestimate Russia, invade Russia in the summer thinking they're going to win the war quickly. They don't win the war quickly and it becomes winter. Because, and so the, the Russian winter is not an excuse. Number one, the Russians had to fight in the winter too. They weren't like Mr. Freeze from Batman. They weren't immune to the cold. They had to fight in the winter too. They just prepared for it better. And the Germans, German generals, guys, you know winter is coming. The Russian winter is not a secret weapon. Everybody knows about the Russian winter. If you didn't prepare for it and the Soviets did, that just makes you a bad general. That's not, that's not a superpower the Russians have. The Russian winter, everybody knows about the Russian winter. So no, that's not an excuse. Uh, Russian hordes. This is the one where the Germans are like, well, we would have defeated the Russians, but they outnumbered us so greatly. They, they swarmed us with their Russian hordes, their Asiatic hordes. There's always a very, um, like a racist connotation to this. Like the Eastern swarms just overwhelmed the brave Western soldiers fighting against the communist tide. And you can see like this idea of like the Eastern hordes. It's a very old idea. It goes back way back in Western history to um, the Greeks fighting the Persians at Thermopylae or the, or the Western Europeans fighting the Ottomans. Large armies that these empires trot out and like, oh, we were outnumbered fighting, you know, outnumbered against the hordes. And that becomes like a staple of this whole idea of Westerners versus Easterners. Like the few brave Westerners against the many Eastern hordes. And the Rus and the Germans were trying to evoke this. They were trying to bring out this myth and say, look, look at how brave and wonderful and mighty we were. Okay. Again, you knew the Russians outnumbered you when you attacked them. What did you think was going to happen? Were they, what, what, this, this isn't football. You don't have to have the same number of players on the field. This is not football. This is total war. If you, if the German... Like, if you can bring three to one superiority to a battle, you'd be stupid not to. If you can have 10 tanks for every one tank the enemy has, you'd be stupid not to. Of course they, had, they outnumbered you. And, but not at first. This is what people forget. This is what people misinterpret. When the Germans invaded the Soviet Union, the first few months, they outnumbered the Red Army in the battle sector. They outnumbered them. And in the battle in front of Moscow in 1941, the Germans had the number advantage. In Stalingrad, despite what certain movies will tell you, the Germans outnumbered the Soviets throughout the battle. When the Germans were winning, they had more troops in the critical areas. When the Germans were losing, they had less troops in the critical areas. Gee, it's almost like that has something to do with it, right? But seriously, no, look. But the Germans lose two major battles at Moscow and Stalingrad because they have more troops, but they don't have them in the right places. They're outmaneuvered, essentially. But we'll get to that. No, so no, the Germans can't use numbers as an excuse. Number one, because they knew the Soviets outnumbered them when they attacked them. And it's not a bad point on the Soviet part to have more troops because, of course you do. You'd be hilariously incompetent not to bring overwhelming superiority to any battle you fight. But... 
in the beginning of the war, the Germans outnumbered the Soviets. The Axis troops outnumbered the Soviets. This is uh, this often a little weird little shell game where the, um, people try to portray the Germans as outnumbered at the beginning of the war because they don't count the Axis troops. They don't count the Italians, Romanians, Hungarians, and Finns who were a large part of the war. Germany literally could not have fought the war without its Axis allies. It's no surprise that when Germany's lost all its Axis allies is when it's really losing. Um, but yeah, so that's Soviet hordes, not an excuse. You shouldn't have attacked them. Uh, we already saw why Hitler attacked them, but they shouldn't have done that, like from a basic military strategy standpoint. Yeah, so myth number three is stupid Hitler. Stupid Hitler, you know, we would have won the war, but stupid Hitler messed up our plans and did everything wrong. <sighs> People like to blame everything on Hitler. People like to blame everything that Germany did on Hitler because, well... He's dead. He couldn't defend himself. Not that he should have, because he was, you know, one of the greatest fonts of evil in human history. But it was easy for them to pawn every bad decision off on Hitler after the war was over. Well, Hitler should have let us do this or that or this or that, but he didn't because he was, you know, so stupid. No. Hitler had a group of generals beside him every step of the way. Every decision he made, Hitler had generals supporting him. Hitler had people who agree with his decisions. Sometimes, occasionally, Hitler's decisions were correct. Like, this, the, the whole idea of Hitler ruining the German general's master plans is a story the German generals made up. In reality, it was much more complicated than that. Yes, Hitler could be a hilariously incompetent military leader at some points. Like, when he, um, he was trying to look at a situation map of Stalingrad and... He was trying to give orders to individual battalions and regiments from hundreds of miles away. No, no. But, you know, the problem is that the German generals also made major mistakes. And they paid for these major mistakes. They lost the war. But they tried to blame everything on Hitler afterwards as if Hitler did it all alone. Hitler couldn't have done it all alone. He had a group of generals from the very beginning backing him up every step of the way. So, why did the Germans fail to defeat the Soviet Union? Why? Well, two reasons. Big reasons. Broad reasons. The German Army's weaknesses and the Red Army's strengths. German Army, we've said, we talk about how the German Army fought wars, right? They tried to win the war in a single decisive blow. And the German armies over-focus on their combat arms. They focus on those a lot. Too much. Because the German army was extremely weak in two key areas that killed them in the Soviet Union. Supply and intelligence. Supply is a big one. Supply is like an, the iron hand of logistics that will choke off anything that goes too far, too fast, without enough backing it up. I mean, the German, ar the German army's logistics were easily some of the worst in the world. But just hands down. The Japanese logistics were sometimes better. The, Ger the German army's logistics were, it's all the, the Germans didn't like logistics. They didn't like to think about it. It was messy, complicated. You know, this is where all the nerds hung out. The nerds were all logistics officers. All the cool buff guys, the high school quarterback guys were panzer commanders or infantry commanders or whatever. So this idea of the, the devalued logistics and overvalued combat troops, but the combat troops can't do much fighting without the logistics. And 
The logistics guys, during the planning to invade the Soviet Union, all the German generals were having the time of their lives like, ooh, we're going to go over here. We're going to launch our panzers over here. We're going to surround these guys. We're going to surround these guys. And the logistics guys in the background like, um, guys, guys, uh, we're going to run outrun our supplies in 300 miles. Uh, we only have enough fuel for a few months of active operations. Uh, guys, you're not listening to me. Guys. Yeah, so the, the nerds, I'm, I'm, I'm making a stupid nerd noise because, you know, it's, it's funny, but I'm a nerd myself, so I can explain, you know, understand the frustration when someone who does, you know, when you really know what you're talking about, they don't listen to you. The German generals had never listened to logistics guys. They believed the logistics would sort themselves out. Rommel literally said that at one point. The logistics will figure itself out. I make the plans. Your job is to support them. And so they didn't. They just put the logistics guys, the supply guys, on the back row. We'll we'll tell you what you need to support. You just have to support it. Well, when the Russian railways were all a different gauge than the German, uh, the Germans were using a thousand, like almost a thousand different kinds of motor vehicle in the invasion of the Soviet Union because they didn't have enough trucks. They didn't have a motor industry. They didn't have the oil or rubber to make them. So they just, they stole trucks from France and Yugoslavia and Denmark and just brought these trucks into the German army so they could motorize their units. But most of these trucks broke down on the way into Russia. And, you know, you don't have, you're asking for spare parts for this crazy French truck you pulled out of some farmer's house in Paris. They're the, the, the Russian, the Germans don't have a spare part for that. What You don't even know what, anyway. But my point is, German logistics were a mess, a mess. Uh, they, they did not have the ability to support such a huge army so far into the Soviet Union. So the, the problem is that when the Germans are deep into, the, deep into Russia, they have their front line out there. It's mainly just a thin shell of those infantry divisions that are still being pulled by horses. They're just holding on to trenches hundreds of miles into Soviet territory, very, very far from their supply lines. Yeah. Um, and then there's intelligence. The German army's mis underestimation of the Soviet army and the underestimation of its size and the underestimation of its equipment was so bad it wasn't even in the ballpark. German military intelligence was famously the worst in Europe. Uh, the Polish had better military intelligence than the Germans. The Germans missed. Like, the Germans looked at the Soviet army in front of them in Russia and said, that's the Soviet army. So when we defeat that army, we've won the war. No, 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 no. That's not the Red Army. That's the tip of the iceberg. The Red Army not only had many different units that were deployed all back in the Soviet Union that they brought up to the front line as soon as the war began. But the German intelligence services also missed the fact that the Soviets had 14 million reservists just waiting to be called up. 14 million reservists. So the Germans expect to win the war in six weeks. That's Germany. They always try to win their war in six weeks. But when six weeks have come and gone in June and July 1941, and the Russian army isn't dead, they're like, uh, aren't we supposed to have won by now? The Russian army isn't getting weaker. They keep coming up with new troops and new formations and new armies. They seem to be getting stronger. And they were. And they were. Plus, the Germans ran into a very unpleasant situation when they learned the Soviets had better tanks than they did. More on that later when we talk about the German weaponry. But yeah, so the Germans are just, they badly underestimated the Soviet Union. Badly. Not only its soldiers, but its will to fight. 
And this is where the Red Army itself comes in. Because the Red Army started off World War II not being very good, but they learned fast. They got better fast. By the end of the war, the Soviets are taking the Germans to school. The Soviets are just tearing chunks out of the German army. Just enormous battles where German units are being wiped out. It's not even funny. The Soviets have operational terms the Germans don't have, like depth, synchronization, consecutive operations. We're all along the front line, from Leningrad down to the Black Sea. The Soviets launch one attack, just a huge attack, that just rips out 90 miles of German front line. The Germans rush all their troops down there to try to stop that attack, and a couple weeks later, the Russians launch another attack at the place where those units just left. This kept the Germans pushing. The Germans didn't have time to think. They were just being pushed back slowly, but very firmly, and with enormous losses back to Germany. The Red Army got really good at warfare. The Red Army, by the end of the war, had some of the best generals in history, with some of the most hardened, disciplined troops in history, some of the, the strongest army the world had ever seen by 1945. I mean it, even the American. But this really comes to the fore at Moscow, where um, the Germans are driving on Moscow in December 1941. It's winter, but they want to capture Moscow before the end of the year. Maybe that'll defeat the Soviet Union. It's not going to defeat the Soviet Union. Even if they took Moscow, they'd just be in another urban battle like Stalingrad. But the Germans are moving towards Moscow. And all my history books, when I was growing up, when I was a kid, all my history books said something like, the Germans were stopped at Moscow. That's not quite true. Germans weren't stopped at Moscow. They were almost destroyed because they ground to a halt. They outran their supply lines. There was this, the, the winter that, you know, they had been unprepared for came. Soviet resistance is heroic, ferocious, and they are stopped in front of Moscow. And then the Soviets counterattack. Like the Germans just run out of steam and then the Soviets strike back and they almost overwhelm and destroy the Wehrmacht. The Soviets won World War II because not only of German weaknesses, because of Red Army strengths. The Red Army was not a helpless horde of barely armed men. That whole Enemy at the Gates thing, that movie about the Battle of Stalingrad, most of that is entirely fictional. Um, the Soviets did not send unarmed men charging into battle. That was a World War I thing that the Tsar tried to do to his army in 1915, and that did not work either. But, uh, no, the, the Soviet army was extremely well-equipped, and they, they didn't start out well. They, always, they did make many mistakes, but they got better fast. They learned fast. I mean, they were in the hardest school in the world. They were, in, they were learning warfare from the Wehrmacht, the German military. But by 1943, it was the Germans who were having to learn, and they were not learning fast enough. By 1945, it's the same old Wehrmacht, trying to do the same old Wehrmacht thing and failing. The old tricks just don't work anymore. The Soviets turned the tide of the war at Moscow and Stalingrad. So this brings us to myth number six. And this one is less something that's stated and more something that's kind of assumed. The idea of Nazi super soldiers. And part of this is something that, again, German propaganda. German propaganda is a heck of a drug because it was so good that people are still unironically repeating it decades later, even if they're not Nazi German sympathizers or anything like that. This idea that the German soldiers, German military, was somehow better, somehow 
just gods of war. They were only defeated by probably Russian hordes or the Russian winter or something. But here's the thing. The German soldiers, German military of World War II was flesh and blood. Nothing special made them elite. Their training wasn't particularly, the basic training wasn't particularly better. Their, uh, their discipline wasn't particularly better. Uh, their discipline was actually worse in some cases because they were always committing war crimes. Gee, that's not good for discipline. So, this idea of the Nazi super soldiers, this idea of these just six foot five Aryan, you know, dominators that just ruled the battlefield. No, absolutely not. The Germans were people same as everyone else. They died same as everyone else. They didn't have higher health bars or anything. So, this idea of the German elite soldier was, of course, something promoted by the Germans themselves. But we also have to keep in mind a few things. The Germans were a very dangerous opponent. I think that can be underrated. Uh, especially in... There's a popular counter-jerk, a, um, a backlash to the idea of German super soldiers by saying the German military was actually garbage. German military had weaknesses, but it was not garbage. If it had been garbage, it wouldn't be as wouldn't have been as dangerous as it was. Nazism wouldn't have been as dangerous as it was, and the uh, and the Allies wouldn't look very good for de- taking so long to defeat it, would they? No, the German military was not garbage, but it was good at a very specific set of things. It was good at attacking. It was good at uh, high unit cohesion, very high morale, um, lots of. Pretty strong discipline, uh, despite the myth. The, this discipline was also often enforced by execution. Despite the myth, the Soviets executed less people in World War II than the Germans did. The German military, uh, the, the militaries, and people don't understand this because you know they see uh, Enemy at the Gates that movie and they're like, oh, the Soviets executed anyone tried to retreat. No. Uh, the Germans executed a lot of people who tried to retreat, especially later in the war. The Germans executed thousands of their own soldiers for stupid stuff. There was this one uh, German field marshal, uh, Ferdinand Schoener. Uh, Schoener was... I'm, this guy's a real piece of work. Like, even for German generals, who were mostly a bunch of murderous creeps. I don't like this guy even worse, because this guy... He was always looking for someone to execute. He showed up once at a mechanic shop in late in the late war where this tank crew was waiting to get their Panzer fixed. And he just executed the tank commander because he was, you know, lollygagging. You're waiting to get your tank fixed. What is what is this? Scherner was just a tyrant. That was just how he was. Hitler loved Scherner, you know. Scherner's going to put some backbone into these German soldiers. Scherner was a creep. But, uh... Even more of a creep than most of them, because Scherner was also a war criminal, like all the rest of them. But so this idea of the you know German super soldier ignores some very salient facts about the German military. Uh, the big one is that the German manpower problem. They had a very big manpower problem from the very beginning, because German Germany front loaded all its best, all its prime manpower into the military from the get go, because they expected to win the war quickly. When that didn't happen, seriously. To prepare for the invasion of Russia, Germany pulled people off the factory workbenches and sent them into the military. Hitler promised them, you will be back at your benches in months. Uh, they were not at their back at their benches in months. Most of them ended up face down in the snows of Russia. But the Germans had a manpower problem very early on. Even people know that the uh, Hitler youth and like old men and young boys were making up a large part of German units by the end of the war. 
but in reality, the Germans were running into manpower problems as early as 1942. They were, uh, they were calling up the uh, conscription classes early. Like, most of the German soldiers that marched to Stalingrad in the middle of the war, not the end, the middle of the war, were like, they looked like high school football teams. They were just 17, 18-year-old kids in the, most of these units. And most of them died. But Germany lost like half its manpower to death or injury in World War II. But Germany was already scraping the bottom of the manpower barrel in 1942, so by the time the Americans are really involved in the war, the units they're facing are not prime German manpower. These are teenagers. These are older men who expected to be out beyond military age. In a lot of cases, the Germans are fielding units of prisoners of war. The Osttruppen, a lot of these battalions guarding the, um, the coast of Normandy or the coast of France, were like Ukrainians or Czechs who were allowed to leave, get out of the concentration camps if you volunteer for the Ost battalions. And of course, you're like, yes, please get me out of here. And then you find yourself defending uh, the coast of France against Americans. Like, I'm a Ukrainian defending France for Germany against America. What, what am I doing here? And they immediately surrender. Like, they are worse than useless as combat units for obvious reasons. But, like, the Germans are just short on manpower. And all the best manpower go to those very few divisions, the Panzer divisions or the SS divisions. And so when Americans run into these units, they're generally like, wow, these units are pretty tough. Yeah, because they're, like, they're getting all the good equipment. They're getting all the good soldiers. They're getting all the good recruits. 85% of the German military is just a, a shambling wreck of, you know, there's one entire division guarding the beaches of France in 1942, 43, 44. It was the 70th Infantry Division, I think. And it was literally, this was the stomach ache division. They concentrated all the dudes who were previously ineligible for military service because they had stomach problems and put them in one unit so they, it would be easier to take care of them. There was a poor hearing division. There was a poor eyesight division. Like... The Germans are hauling out people who have no business being in modern war and sending them to the front. The Austrupen. Uh, in, in June 1944, when the Allies invade Normandy, the third Canadian, the Canadians in Normandy, who everybody forgets the Canadians were there, Canada's pretty awesome in both world wars, but they end up fighting the 12th SS Panzer Division, the Hitler Jugend Division, the Hitler Youth Division. And these guys are supposed to be elite. They're the Hitler Youth Division. They're, like they're, Most of their rank and file are like 15 to 18. They fight ferociously, but they're always attacking. They're always taking stupid risks. They're always just like, they're, they're going, they're yelling, charge, and just attacking the Canadians. And the 12th SS Panzer Division barely exists in a couple of months. They're too aggressive. They're too reckless. A lot of these supposedly elite units... I mean, they aren't really elite for long because, you know, a lot of this, the Germans sent all these elite panzer divisions or so-called elites to fight the allies in Normandy. A uh, couple months after a couple of months of American artillery fire and air power and, you know, just British spitfires and massive battles, they ain't elite no more. All the elite guys are dead. <laughs> um, these same divisions invade, attack the Americans in uh, the Battle of the Bulge and 19, December 1944, and they are they have been built back up, but they've been built back up on like the last people you should put in the military. These guys are um 
older factory workers with families of their own, like guys in their 40s and 50s. It's uh, high, guys who are just out of high school, guys who are pulled out of the factories or pulled out of the Luftwaffe or pulled out of the supply services because the supply services kept getting raided for warm bodies when they really needed those guys because Germany's already not doing too hot in the supply department, but Germany's just sending everybody to the front at that point. If, you, if you're breathing, you're in. So for most of the time, America's fighting Germany in these large land battles in 1944-45, nobody they're fighting could be considered elite. Not by any stretch of the imagination. These aren't these are, these guys don't go through special forces training. They're lucky if they get any training. Um, the um, I think the first SS Panzer Division, which attacked the Americans in the Battle of the Bulge. This is this very famous battles concerning them, but. They'd gotten new tanks and they got new crews because they had been basically wiped out in Normandy and been rebuilt from new recruits. But the only training these soldiers got was driving the tanks to their starting positions for the battle. Like that was the only driver's training they had, not only because they didn't have time, but also because the Germans didn't have enough fuel to train them, their drivers how to drive tanks. Not a great sign. Speaking of not a great sign, uh, the entire German plan for the Battle of the Bulge, this massive attack that was supposed to defeat the Americans in, 1940, in the winter of 1944, uh, the plan literally required them to capture American fuel. Like, that was where they were going to get their fuel supplies because the Germans did not have enough fuel to finish the plan. That's bad. You probably shouldn't be fighting the war anymore if that's the case. But it was Hitler, so... So maybe the German soldiers weren't always the best. What about their generals? I hear their generals are really good, really good generals. Eh. Like the soldiers who had high combat abilities and everything, but were not the best. Um, the German generals were good at very particular things. They were good at attacking operations. They were very, uh, always a very aggressive bunch, very flexible, creative, tactically good. But that was all they were good at. Like, they had a very limited skill set of attacking. That was their only answer to anything. There was this one, the commander of a German panzer division in Sicily in 1943, a German general, Paul Konrath, who was leading the Hermann Göring panzer division, a Luftwaffe panzer division. Yeah, a, a, an Air Force panzer division, long story. But uh, they were interviewing him like, hey, what is your plan for when the Americans land on Sicily? He's like, if you want an aggressive, reckless rush at the enemy, I'm your man. And that was German generalship right there. Aggressive, reckless rush at the enemy. Uh, the Hermann Goering Panzer Division gave the Americans basically the fight of their life in Sicily in 1943. This is Patton who's landing in Sicily. But the Germans lost. <laughs> Didn't work. Their whole strategy, the whole German way of war of attack is attack with everything you have as soon as possible was very limited in the face of overwhelming air superiority, uh, naval gunfire, advanced artillery tactics, and just sheer determination from Americans and British and Soviet soldiers. German panzer attacks, especially later in the war, always started out really strong, and they hung up, hung up on some obstacles, some American infantry battalion that just wouldn't, wouldn't retreat and wouldn't break on the top of this ridge, or some Soviet line of anti-tank guns, and they would just fall apart. That was the only trick they had. They didn't have another idea. The The Soviets are, the Germans are planning to try to defeat the Soviets in 1943, and they're planning to attack this place called Kursk. 
what is the attack supposed to accomplish? They don't actually know. They just know they got to attack. We always attack. We're the Germans. But it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work because the Soviets know they're coming. They build up their forces and they just grind the Germans to a halt. And then the Soviets counterattack and it's all downhill from there. But my point is, the German generals had a very limited toolbox. There were excellent German generals. But they were only good in a certain thing. They were only good at a certain thing. They were not good at the big picture stuff. They were good at winning their battles, the battles that were in front of them. As for the rest of it, uh, we'll figure that out as we go along. They weren't good at strategy or logistics or long-term planning or any of the stuff that Americans and British and Soviets were good at. If you ask your if you ask Paul Conrath, who's like, I'm going to aggressively rush at the enemy, what is supposed what this is supposed to accomplish long term? We're going to beat them in the battle. Yeah, but how are you going to win the war that way, right? Um, several of these German generals, uh, especially Erich von Manstein and Walter Model, who were excellent generals, excellent at delaying the enemy, delaying the enemy. Manstein builds an entire career, like entire post-war writing career, writing books about how he delayed the Soviets for so long in these major epic battles. Yeah, but delaying for what? It's only delaying if you have something you're trying to delay for. Otherwise, you're just postponing the inevitable. It's not accomplishing anything. Or uh, Walter Model. Walter Model is one of the uh, guys who really should be... A, if, if you're talking about great German generals of World War II, excellent German generals... Modal takes takes my cake, like one of the most underrated, because in 1944-45, he gets this nickname as the Fuhrer's Fireman, because he's sent to all the trouble spots. Like, if the Russians break through, Modal, go, go stop them, and he'll patch together a defensive line. Uh, the Russians break through somewhere else, Modal, go stop them. And he goes together, he like strings together broken units and rear area detachments and a couple of tanks here, couple, and he stops them in... August 1944, when the Allies have broken out of Normandy and they're rushing for the German border, Hitler says, Modal, stop them. Modal strings together a defense from all these battered remnants of units, a couple of German tanks here, a couple of guys here, and he slowly grinds the British and Americans to a halt in Operation Market Garden and along the German border. Modal is excellent at pulling victory out of the jaws of defeat. But he's only postponing the inevitable. He doesn't have a way to win the war. He just has a way to not lose this month, next month, who knows? But this month, we're going to survive. He's good at that, but he's not good at winning the war. The German generals just had no way to win the war. They had no, they had no new ideas. But you know who did have ideas, or thought he did? Hitler. Myth number seven. Super weapons. So, a lot gets made. And this is, comes from... Very, very pop history stuff. A lot gets made of German military technology in World War II. It is one of the things that people obsess about. It's one of the things that, as a teenager, as a young as a young man, I obsessed about. Because it was cool. Uh, all this technology was really cool. The big tanks and the rockets and the jet fighters and all this stuff the Germans had when it was too late for it to matter. But... Let's look at some of this crazy technology the Germans were supposed to have. This... The Germans have technologically advanced more than the Allies. No, not really. Not in the ways that mattered. Okay, 
So you got German tanks, right? Every, it's, it's common knowledge, super common knowledge that the German tanks were better than the Allied tanks. I don't think this was true for a few reasons. Uh, yes, yes. If you 1v1, if you put one German Tiger tank versus one American tank, the German Tiger tank is generally going to win. But that wasn't the only type of combat the Germans were fighting. That wasn't the only thing they should have been concerned about. Tank v. tank duels were not that common in any of the fighting. What really mattered in the long term was stuff the Germans didn't worry about. It was the German tanks were a reflection of how they fought wars. The German tanks were really good at combat, but not really good in a lot of other ways. So these tanks, the Tiger tanks and the Panther tanks, I'm just going to call them the Big Cats. The Big Cats had problems. The Big Cats were rushed into production. They were, because the Germans ran into Soviet tanks in 1941 that were better than anything they'd ever produced. The Germans run into these, the T-34 especially. T-34 was an advanced design. It had better armor, a better gun. It was more maneuverable. The Germans looked at this T-34 as like, oh, oh, we need to step up our game. These are much better than what we have. So they made these heavier tanks, these bigger tanks, the Tiger and the Panther. These tanks had big armor. They had big guns. They were pretty maneuverable. They were just, you know, make it all bigger. This came with problems, serious problems. Uh, first, like I said, they were rushed into production. They didn't go through all the testing they should have gone through. And this caused major maintenance issues early on. Those got fixed later. But the Tiger and Panther were still a nightmare to maintain. They, uh, the Tiger, they both they blew out their final drives for basically no reason because the final drives they were using in these tanks were still final drives from uh, don't know what a final drive is. That's cool. It's tanker tank stuff. That's, that's actually my job in the military. If you didn't know, but the Tiger used the final drive from the Panzer IV, the uh, the uh, transmission, and it blew it out all the time because the Panzer IV final drives were not strong enough for the Tiger's bulk, its weight. Uh, the Panther, the transmission would catch on fire for like no reason. Uh, to change the Panther's transmission, you had to remove the turret. You can't do that in the middle of you can't do that in the middle of a field maintenance shop. You have to take that back to like a real maintenance bay. Maintenance was a nightmare. They were over-engineered, over-complicated. Supplying them was a nightmare because they were gas guzzlers. They sucked up an enormous amount of fuel. And hey, hey, remember what Germany doesn't have a lot of at this point in the war? Fuel. They don't have a lot of it. So they were they were very resource intensive, very labor intensive tanks to make. They were hard to maintain. Like a battalion of Tiger tanks going into battle had a battalion of maintenance following behind it because they would need it. And they nightmare to maintain, nightmare to produce, nightmare to supply, and the Germans didn't make enough of them. I think the Germans made something like a thousand Tiger tanks in the whole war, and they made 500 of the big King Tigers, the big boys, big tanks. Uh, the Americans made like 50,000 Sherman tanks because the Americans found a simple, decent design that could be easily modified, that you could transport by sea, which was always a requirement the Americans had that Germans never had to worry about. The Americans had to be able to transport their tanks by sea. It had, it wasn't the greatest armor, but it was decent. Not the greatest gun, but it was decent. Uh, it was easily modifiable. It was easy to supply. It was, the drivetrain for the Sherman was just two Ford engines on the same drivetrain. And any guy who worked on this truck back home could open that thing up and fix it. Uh, Sherman, 
easy to easy to fix, easy to maintain, easy to supply, easy to produce. The Americans are just pumping out Shermans. Sherman tanks are amazing. And, uh, you know, the, the British have all their own little tank designs, and then America comes along, hey, hey, Britain, you want 50,000 Shermans, basically? Like, the most of the British armored divisions in the late war were made were full of American-made Sherman tanks. Americans were throwing Shermans at the Soviets. Hey, Soviets, you want some Shermans? You want some spare tanks? Because we had plenty of tanks. We weren't going to run out. Germans never had enough tanks. Germans never had enough fuel to put in their tanks. Uh, the Soviets had the T-34. And the T-34 started not being great against the Tiger and Panther. Uh, we'll put a bigger gun in the T-34. And that was, that was more than enough. The T-34-85 slightly upgraded the gun, and T-34 is fine. The, Sher the Germans should have just picked a simple design for the tank and stuck with it. Really, really they should have. Because while they're trying to out-quality the Allies, the Allies are making decent tanks in enormous numbers. The Germans are making super high-quality tanks in small numbers, and these super high-quality tanks are hard to maintain and supply. Not super weapons. Not war winners. You're not going to win the war that way. And of course, the Tigers and Panthers, there were never enough of them to matter. Never enough of them to matter. Didn't matter. Uh, I think I read somewhere that it was, it cost like $240,000 in man hours and materials to make a King Tiger tank. It cost like $40,000 to make a Sherman. Or $30,000. Like, you can make eight Shermans for the price of one Tiger. And the Shermans are going to be more useful. The Tiger doesn't have enough fuel to get to the battlefield. Okay, so not tanks. Maybe could. The Germans had these crazy good aircraft, right? They had these, uh, the jet fighters. Never enough to matter. The Germans did not produce enough of these jet fighters to matter. It wasn't advanced design. But again, with what fuel? What aviation fuel are you going to put in this thing? The ME-262 was the German jet fighter. The Germans had the first really operational jet fighter of the war. And it had problems because it was rushed into production, just like the big cats. And by the, t by, the, by the time the Germans are producing enough of the ME-262, the Soviets have captured their oil fields, and the Americans have total air superiority. The Americans and the British and the Western Allies. There's the, the Germans, Hitler constantly talked about how we will produce enough of these jet fighters. We will take the air back from the Allies. That never happened. Not even remotely. Not even close. The ME-262 was easily outmatched by American four-engine bombers, thousands of them just plastering German cities from the, from the skies. They um, cut huge dents into German aircraft production. The British, too. I, I keep saying the Americans, but also the British. British and Americans basically working hand-in-hand hand by this point. Again, advanced design. Pretty advanced design. True. Not enough to matter. Then you have the rockets. German V-2 rockets. These amazing... The Germans developed the first uh, ballistic, ballistic missile. And what do they do with it? What do you do with it? Well, we, we're going to just throw them at Britain and hope they convince Britain to surrender. These were the V1s and the V2s, the V-weapons. Britain lived in fear for a the rest of the war of V-weapon attacks. Random rockets just crashing over from Europe and killing random British civilians or blowing up random buildings. But that didn't change the outcome of the war. Like, the Germans spent enormous amounts of money, enormous amounts of manpower. I think, it, I think it cost the Germans more than the atomic bomb cost America to build these V weapons. And they just threw them at Britain, expecting Britain to surrender. And then Britain didn't surrender. Uh, yeah, because these aren't 
these aren't like modern cruise missiles. You can't aim them at anything. You're just lobbing them over like softballs at Britain. Like, hey, Britain, give up. Hey, Britain, give up. It's too late. It's too late. It's 1944. You're losing. And that's not helping you win. That is a waste of resources. Might be advanced design. Sure. Whatever. It is a waste of resources, a waste of time, a waste of energy that you don't have to spare. It's too late. V weapons. Advanced. Yeah. Not enough to matter. The jet fighter. Yeah. Not enough to matter. Panther and tiger. Maybe advanced. Serious drawbacks. But even if they were advanced, not enough to matter. Because the problem was that Germany got itself in a war with the world's largest army, the world's largest overseas empire, and the world's largest industrial power, the United States. You can't make cool technology your way out of this. <laughs> this like n- Nothing you produced, nothing Germany produced in 1944-45 was going to change the tide of the war. It just wasn't. They'd got... Hitler had gotten them into this mess and burned every possible bridge out of it, and the Allies were closing in. There was just no way around it. But if you still think the Germans had super weapons, and they did have some decently advanced designs, but it wasn't enough, you should also keep in mind, like, does this make Germany look modern? A little bit. But keep in mind those manpower problems they were having, and now think about the fact that most of the German men were not in the factories. So who were running the factories? Massive, inhuman amounts of slave labor. Just people kidnapped from France or Italy or Poland or Russia and forced to work in the factories, basically on starvation rations. The the tunnels that were carved out for the V-weapon production cost thousands of dead forced labor. Your vision of these advanced German weapons should not be you know, the cool tank or the cool jet fighter or whatever. It should be the Polish teenager chained to his workbench, banging out one armor plate for a Panther tank after another. And the, the slave labor was not motivated. Not at all. Uh, a lot of the stuff they produced was had obvious sabotage, obvious defects. There's the famous incident in March 1945 when the Americans captured this bridge over the Rhine, the bridge at Remagen. The Germans try to blow up the bridge before the Americans capture it, but the bridge doesn't blow up. Turns out that the high explosives the Germans had were built, producing this factory run by Polish slave labor, as most factories in Germany were by this point, and the high explosive had been sabotaged. Like half the artillery shells, tanks, aircraft, all had obvious defects that the slave labor was putting in there. You know what the Americans didn't have? You know what the Soviets didn't have? People who were actively sabotaging the weaponry they were making because the Americans and the British and the Soviets didn't run on slave labor. Gee, it's almost like that makes a difference. So no, the Germans didn't really have super weapons. They might have been decent. They might have been even a little bit advanced in some areas than the Allies. But consider, the Allies had Tanks are easier to produce, and in some cases, in a lot of ways, better. Because they were better because they were easier to produce. Uh, the Americans had some of the best aircraft in the war. The P-51 Mustang was the best prop fighter in the entire war. And even if the Germans had the ME-262, the P-51s and their experienced pilots still ran rings about these poor German boys shoved into a modern jet fighter they had no idea how to fly with not enough fuel to train them. 
and uh, the V weapons. Pointless. No strategic benefit whatsoever. But the Americans are producing the atomic bomb. So if you ever think that the Germans are more scientifically advanced than the Americans, which one of them produced the nuclear warf- nuclear weapons? Not the Germans. But even simple things like the M1 Garand rifle, the the landing craft, all the landing craft the Allies produced, the four-engine bombers they produced, the industrial production methods that the Allies used were more advanced than the Germans. The Soviets. In 1942-43, the Soviets outproduced the Germans in tanks and aircraft when the Soviets have lost like a third of their country and half their factories to the German attack. And just more mundane technology, not the flashy technology, the mundane technology, stuff like organization, bureaucracy, industrial methods, chemical methods, all this stuff the Germans were behind in. The flashy weapons could not make up for the overwhelming industrial power of the Allies. And that was partly because of Allied success. You can't discount that. That the Allies were more technologically advanced than the Germans in the ways that mattered. Full stop. Myth number eight is the myth of the clean Wehrmacht. The myth of just following orders. The myth of, well... I know those other guys were committing war crimes, but I was fighting for Germany. Absolutely not. 100%. This is the darker part of the story, because it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that everybody fighting for Germany was evil. And I don't think that everybody fighting for Germany was evil. I mean, we've seen that they were conscripting people. Many people did not want to go to the war went. But the vast majority of people who are fighting in the German ranks, both the Army, the Army, Navy, Air Force, and the SS, the Waffen-SS, they believed in what they were doing. They believed in their cause, whatever they believed that cause to be, whether they believed in Hitler's racial ideology, which a far larger number of them did than people want to believe. A far larger number of the German rank and file believed in what Hitler was saying to the end, then people really feel comfortable in admitting. Or at least they weren't willing to do anything about it. The German military and the German army and the, all that is inextricably linked to the Holocaust. You can't separate the two of them. The German military enabled the Holocaust. All the German generals who might say, well, I didn't have anything to do with the Holocaust. Yeah, but you enabled, you, let, you allowed it to happen. Your actions and your service allowed it to happen. I mean, every day the German armies fought off the Soviets or fought off the Americans was another day that those furnaces were going on in Auschwitz or Treblinka or a Sobibor or Chelmno. It was another day that people were starving to death in Bergen-Belsen or Dachau. The, the German military was an integral part of the Holocaust, and Hitler saw the Holocaust as an integral part of the war. Because the war was against the international Jewish conspiracy that was trying to destroy Germany in Hitler's mind. And you can see, after, especially after Moscow and after the Americans declare war on Germany, that's when the Holocaust really ramps up. Because Hitler believes he's waging war against not just America, not just the Soviets, not just Britain, but he's waging war on the people of occupied Europe, on the Jews, on the Poles, on the Soviets, on the Russian people. Uh, the Germans massacred millions of people, far beyond the six million number of Jewish people killed in the Holocaust, millions of Soviets, millions of Poles, 
I think uh, Belorussia lost like 45% of its population in World War II because the German military was just annihilating one village after another behind the front lines. It was a genocidal war from the very beginning. It was an ideological, racially motivated genocidal war. And the German military took part in it every step of the way. They were not innocent. They were not clean of all the blood that was on Germany's hands after the war. People have tried to claim this. People have tried to, you know, especially someone who might have had a relative in the German military. Maybe some of y'all did. They, they saw some stuff. They saw some stuff, and if they're still alive today, they probably didn't do a lot to stop it. That's all I got to say about that. There were people that did do they did try to stop it. Most of them were executed. <laughs> I mean, but enough people, if enough people had tried, it might have stopped. Yes, true. Some German officers did try to assassinate Hitler a few times, but they didn't try to assassinate Hitler because he was perpetuating the Holocaust or massacring prisoners of war. None of that stuff. No, they were trying to kill Hitler because they thought he was going to lose the war <laughs> because they thought he was their problem. They were going to lose the war if he stayed in charge. The guys who tried to kill Hitler with that bomb in 1944, they didn't really, really want Germany to be defeated. They just wanted Hitler out of the way so they could take charge of the war and maybe win it. It was probably too late by then, but that my point is the German military was not separate from the Holocaust. It was not separate from the German war crimes. It was not separate from the massive amounts of cruelty that went with Nazi Germany. And uh, what people forget sometimes about the Holocaust and about all these mass murders in general is that a lot of the Holocaust did not take place in the death camps. It did not take place in Auschwitz. It took place in villages all across Poland or the Soviet Union. It took place outside cities where German soldiers would escort out thousands of Jews to be lined up by a ditch and just massacred. Uh, it, would, it took place when they starved thousands and millions of people to death by burning, by confiscating all their food and leaving them to starve. Or in a, the German army did this a lot. They would take over a village and force the people in the village out into the cold to die, essentially, into the Russian winter. Because people have been surviving in the Russian winter for decades and centuries by preparing their villages for the winter. And the Germans came in and took the village and forced them out into the forest where they'd starve or freeze to death. That was murder, too. That Just because it didn't take place in a... In a gas chamber doesn't mean it wasn't murder. Just the the bullet in the back of the neck was just as lethal as the gas chamber. And it killed probably more people in World War II than the gas chamber. The bullet in the back of the head. And the German military was part of this every step of the way. The German army liked to claim. All these generals, all these soldiers liked to claim after the war. Oh, I didn't know about any of that Holocaust stuff. I was just following orders. I was just fighting for Germany as a good German citizen. Good German. Absolutely not. 100% not. That's not even remotely true. This, the, it's, it's actually a term. It, you can look it up on Wikipedia. The clean Wehrmacht myth. And it is a myth that somehow remains persistent. There's a bunch of literature, a bunch of stuff with German, general, with German soldiers, you know, honorable German soldiers who refused to kill prisoners, unlike those evil SS men. Well, they didn't really try to stop it, did they? And if they had, we'd... That might not have been in Nazi Germany. <laughs> uh, there's, 
There's a scene in the movie, I think it's a movie called Stalingrad. It's not Enemy at the Gates. It's another movie about Stalingrad where uh, the, the, some of the protagonists are f- forced to kill Russian prisoners of war with the threat of execution. This did not happen. Um, there's the idea, there's the reply I've seen to this myth is, well, if they didn't take part in the war crimes, they would be punished or executed. And they weren't. That's the sick thing about it. Like the germ, there is not a single record of anyone ever being executed for failing to take part in a war crime. When a war crime did occur, there's actually an excellent book about this. It's, um, not a book you want to read if you really like to believe good things about humanity. <laughs> uh, uh, Christopher Browning, Reserve, uh, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland, where they uh, this random battalion of, of German military police rolls up to a village and the commander comes out and says, hey guys, we have to do something that's really, really, really a hard job today. It's an unpleasant job, but someone's got to do it. Uh, we have to kill all the Jews in this town. Because they're going to massacre this entire town, and if you don't want to, you can step out. You can, you can, you can. You're, I'm allowing you to step out. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to. Just step out. We'll, the rest of us will take care of it. A couple people do. A couple people did step out, but most people didn't. Most people went along with the group, and the Germans went along with the group. They went along with it. Most almost. The vast majority of them. Some people, even if they felt bad about it later, they still went along with it. And what we've seen is, what that example shows us is that it was a choice. They had a choice. They had an option. Most of them didn't take it. Most of them take it. Is it you know, they'd look bad. They would look, they would look weak. They would look cowardly. They would look like, they, they, it's almost like they describe it like it was, you know, oh, it's a nasty job, you know, rough job. Someone's got to do it. If you don't want to do it, that's okay. We'll pick up your slack. Essentially, that's how they were pitching it to these guys who might not want to take part in the genocide. Most of them did. Most of them went right along with it. They weren't even forced to. They, they just did. So no. No, absolutely not. If you weren't actively resisting the worst evil in human history... You can't really call yourself clean. Maybe you weren't, maybe even if they didn't commit a war crime, like I still see articles to this day about um some random person who was like a secretary at Auschwitz or something being brought up on charges in Germany. And there was like, well, I was just the secretary. You could have not been the secretary. That was an option you had. No one was forcing you to be the secretary. Simple. No one forced them to do any of this stuff. They did it because... Either they believed in it or they weren't willing to go against the group. They weren't willing to go against the political powers that be. That's all there was to it. They weren't clean at all. The army, navy, air force, just as dirty as the rest of them. Just as dirty as the Nazi party themselves. That's all there was to it. There's not, a, there's not another way around it. So the military stuff, like I say... You can't separate the military from the society. You can't separate the military from the culture. You can't separate the Nazi military from the Holocaust. You cannot separate them. They were part of the same war. They saw themselves as fighting the same war. To the Germans, the SS guy in the death camps flipping the switch on the gas chamber was just as much a soldier doing his job as the guy fighting the Russians the Americans. It was just as important of a job because it was eliminating what they thought of as the Jewish menace. They thought it was part of the war. It was 
an integral part of the war to them. And the fact that it was, the fact that people saw it this way does not make it excusable in any way. Not at all. No one came out of this clean. If you didn't actively resist it, you were helping it happen. Simple. Full stop. Finally, last myth. Myth number nine. The myth of the end. Why did the Germans keep fighting long after any hope of victory was present? The myth tends to be, well, they were just fighting to defend their country. Partially. Partially. There was, at the end of the war, when the, when the Soviets, the Russians, are knocking on the doors of Berlin, when the Soviets are invading eastern Germany, the Soviets were coming, and they were very upset. They were out for revenge, and everybody knew it. Like, every German knew exactly what had happened in the East. They, they had no illusions about what happened when the Soviet army came, when the Red Army came into German territory. And they were right. Uh, when the Red Army entered Germany, it was one of the largest mass rapes in human history. People tried to deny this. Because the Nazis somehow deserved it, but rape is not a tool. Rape is not a just tool of revenge. It is people having this inflicted on them were not the people who had burned Soviet villages or tortured Soviet soldiers or starved Soviet prisoners of war to death. These were the helpless. It is always an act of the powerful against the powerless. There was no justice in this. But it happened, and the Germans knew it was coming. So that was one motivation. Another motivation was that a lot of the soldiers still really believed what Hitler said, that they were in a racial war for survival, that it was either the Jews or Germany who were going to win this war, and that uh, Germany was fighting for its very existence. And to be, you know, give Hitler a little bit of credit for this and absolutely nothing else ever, to under no circumstances you have to give Hitler any credit for almost anything, but Hitler was sort of right at the end of the war and that Germany was fighting for its survival but only because he had made sure Germany was fighting for its survival because he had been so amazingly evil and terrible that practically the entire world was united against Germany. His, like, he, predicted the hol- he predicted the apocalypse, and then he brought it onto himself as quickly as possible. But the Germans kept fighting that long after when they should have realized the war was lost, and they maintained this faith in the Fuhrer and his cause, and seems that Hitler maintained that faith too. S- call Hitler many things, a murderer, the, the, the number one racist of human history, uh, absolutely the, the architect of the greatest collapse of civilization in human history. But Hitler wasn't stupid. I don't think he was crazy. He just believed some really terrible things and put them into action. Not stupid, not crazy. And he saw the writing on the wall. He knew it was happening. But Hitler believed that Germany had failed. Germany had failed, lost the race war, and if they lost, they deserved to lose. They deserved to go down with them. But in a lot of ways, one thing that, if you read Hitler's last few, the minutes in Hitler's last few meetings, which I have read because I'm a nerd with all his generals and ministers and stuff, there's one thing he keeps talking about. One thing he's talking about all the time. And it's one of the reasons I thought that episode I did a few weeks ago, a few months ago, was so important. Hitler keeps talking about 1918. 
he keeps talking about after the armistice, about how Germany had been defeated, stabbed in the back by the Jews and the pacifists and the socialists, and how Germany would have won the war if we hadn't been stabbed in the back, and then the mutinies, and then the revolution, and then the the starvation, and the fear, and the paranoia, and the shame and humiliation of defeat, and Hitler was determined 1918 must never happen again. After the armistice must never happen again. All that trauma, all that bitterness, all that terror, and all this, this, this was a scarring experience for most of the German adult population. Everybody remembered 1918, 1919, 1920. Everybody was constantly thinking about it. And when Germany started to lose the war, that was what everybody was afraid of. That was Hitler, you know, they were afraid of a mutiny. They were afraid of another revolution. And Hitler made sure that didn't happen. He executed anybody who even thought about it, which is why most of the political prisoners they'd taken right after Hitler took power, all the communist stuff, they all ended up dead. They all they were all murdered in the concentration camps. Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who protested the regime, pacifists murdered in the concentration camps. There would be no there would be no mutiny. There would be no pacifists stabbing Germany in the back again. So when millions of Soviet soldiers are swarming the borders of Germany, when American air power is incinerating German cities from the sky, when British and American and French and everybody is just pouring in from the west, when Mo, when Walter Model shoots himself. In, in the Ruhr pocket, Hitler is still in his bunker saying, we can win. We can win. We just got to hold out. We will not have 1918 happening. And I would rather lose the war. I'd rather Germany be destroyed than have 1918 happen again. The German generals, all to, almost all to a man, basically saying, we will be with you, our mind Fuhrer. We will not let 1918 happen again. Because they remembered it too. They remembered surrendering. They remembered the shame and humiliation of the end of World War I, of the Treaty of Versailles, of the British blockade, and of the hunger, of the fear. They remembered all of it. And they were determined. We will fight to the end. We will fight until midnight. We will fight five minutes past midnight if need to. We will never surrender. We will, we will fight to the end. And the German soldiers followed them. And that's exactly what they did. I think people don't often understand how unusual it is in all of human history for a country to literally fight until it is completely occupied and overwhelmed, until its leaders are dead or in prison. That almost never happens. That is highly unusual. And Germany had done this to itself because Hitler basically made sure that nobody would give Germany any mercy when the time came. The Allies had no intention of allowing the remotest trace of the old Germany to remain after the war. It was, it was the warning Hitler had told. Everybody's like, you know, the, the Jews are trying to destroy Germany. It wasn't the Jews. It was just Hitler pissed everybody off, and now they were coming for him. But he had made sure it happened. And this is idea, like this kind of a little myth that... uh. It's often on the History Channel, you know, somehow Hitler survived World War II. No. No. Hitler was always going to die in Berlin. He made sure that everybody knew that. Because he believed it. He believed that Germany was going down and he was going down with it. Like the captain going down with his ship. Only the captain was a country full of millions of people that were going to starve after the war. Their factories were destroyed. Their cities were destroyed. Millions of Allied soldiers occupying their country. Hitler took Germany from being the most powerful country in Europe to being the fifth most powerful country in Germany. 
But it was right. That was what Hitler believed. It was everything that happened in the war was in accordance with his beliefs of racial war and apocalyptic race struggle. And so Hitler shot himself and that was it. He was he went down believing exactly the same things he'd believed at the beginning. His mind had not been changed a bit. And millions of people followed him to the very end. The German generals obeyed their, you know, they obeyed their orders. They fought to the bitter end. Many of them killed themselves. Uh, except for Ferdinand Schoerner, uh, the guy who was executing people for, for retreating or executing that poor tank, tank commander for waiting for his tank to be fixed. Scherner was telling his troops facing the Russians, you will hold to the bitter end. You will never retreat. I will shoot anyone who retreats. And then when the Russians got too close in like the last couple days of the war, Scherner hopped into a plane and flew off to surrender to the Americans instead, leaving his entire army to die. <laughs> or, be, or be captured by the Russians, where they'd be packed off to the gulags for 10 years. Uh, hit. Scherner was asking, like, trying to surrender to the Americans because the Americans treated him better than the Soviets. He surrendered to the Americans. The Americans promptly handed him over to the Soviets, <laughs> where he spent time in prison right alongside the soldiers he had abandoned, and they were obviously mad at him. But... He was convicted and sentenced to years and years in prison for all the German soldiers he'd executed. But yeah, Ferdinand Schoerner was the kind of that he was that kind of guy, the kind of the one of the millions of people who followed Hitler to the bitter end because they believed at least a little bit in what he said, or they were trying to defend Germany from the obvious consequences of their actions. Or they just did not want to experience the shame and humiliation of saying they'd given up before the end. Before, you know, they did not want to have, after the armistice to happen. It was worse. Germany was destroyed. People starved to death after the war was over. Germany was split up for 40 years. And its reputation as a center of civilization and humanity was permanently stained, never to be recovered. You can, I don't think the Germans will ever get over the stain of Nazism. And Germany had won the, had played the stupidest game ever and won the stupidest prize ever it was never going to be a world power again i don't think it ever will be they screwed around and found out essentially so that's the end and the end is it was apocalyptic it was the gotterdammerung the ragnarok gotterdammerung is german for twilight of the gods it comes from ancient germanic mythology and wagner mainly but they went down to the bitter end, and none of it mattered. Not all the murder and stuff they'd done, it was all just a pointless exercise in destruction and the death of civilization and the death of humanity. And people are still fascinated by it, aren't they? They're still fascinated by Hitler and Nazi Germany. Before, the History Channel was pretty much completely uh, mountain men and swamp people and ice road truckers, which... I despise, but before it was that, it was basically the Hitler channel because there's just Hitler documentaries all the time. People are fascinated by Hitler. I think they're fascinated out of morbid fascination. Morbid. There, there are still some people out there who are running around saying like, well, Hitler fixed the economy. Uh, the Blitzkrieg was a revolution in warfare. The German soldiers were super soldiers. They had super weapons. Hitler could have won if he did this. Hitler could have won with this one crazy trick. And they ignored... That these people, I think, speak from a place of ignorance, or they just are ignoring the truth that 
Nazi Germany was built on a broken economy. It was not as modern as it ever claimed to be. It was trying to slap advanced weaponry on an old style of warfare that was outdated in an age of mass industrialization and just mass warfare, which the Americans and the Soviets were far better at than the Germans ever were. It was... Nazi Germany lasted 12 years. It was a misbegotten goulash of dark romanticism and cuckoo racial conspiracy theories that was welded onto a dangerous military that was dangerous in the first quarter, but after the first quarter, it starts to have serious problems. But again, just to remind you, you can't separate it from all that murder. You can't separate it from all that cruelty, that the Holocaust, the military, the German Wehrmacht, and that's the biggest myth of all is that I think the most dangerous one is that you can separate the cool military gear and the cool uniforms, whatever, whatever, from what it did, what it was used for, what it was used to accomplish. The biggest myth about the Wehrmacht, I think, was that it could possibly be separated from all the stuff it did, from all the stuff it allowed to happen, from all the stuff it enabled. Militaries exist to do something. They exist to serve their political leaders. And the German military went right along with Hitler's entire plan for mass genocide, mass destruction, a human wasteland, a total collapse of everything we see good in humanity. The German military was in there the whole time, lockstep. They never questioned it. Or if they did, the answer was yes. So the biggest myth about the Wehrmacht, I think, was that you can look at it in isolation, because you really can't. It was part of the murder mill, this human, I think uh, Dan Carlin once called it the human lawnmower. That was World War II. So we, we can argue about the effectiveness of the military all day, but the effectiveness of the military, which it was effective in certain areas, was what made the Holocaust possible. It was directly linked to the Holocaust. So... It can be a bit ghoulish to argue about ways Germany could have won World War II. But we can't forget that they could have. Certain things have been different. If Britain had been weaker, if the Soviets had been weaker, if America had stayed out of the war, the Germans could have won. That was not, an, it, none of this was inevitable. That was a possible outcome of World War II. It's ghoulish to think about, but it was a possibility. And we will maybe never know how close we came to Hitler's dystopian vision of a German empire. We should all thank our lucky stars that the things I described today, the weaknesses, were Wehrmacht myths <laughs> and not Wehrmacht realities. Hey, thanks a bunch for listening today, as always. I hope you learned something, and maybe if you misunderstood something, maybe you understand it. Maybe if you knew all this stuff before and you were just entertained. I hope you were. If... If you like what you've heard today, please tell your friends about it. This is maybe a good introductory episode. Maybe it's not. Either way, tell your friends about it. Tell your friends. If you didn't like it, tell your enemies. Just don't just don't go telling any Nazis because I don't want them on my Facebook feed or my Twitter feed or anything like that. Because I know they're out there and I have no desire to engage with them. Uh, there are plenty of my ramblings, plenty of stuff I've written on World War II at my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. And if you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. 
I always appreciate feedback, commentary, even if it's just kind words, even if it's negative words, I want to know. If something's wrong in this web in this episode, I want to know. Please tell me. Again, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back to our regular episode format. The holidays are over. It's time to get back to work. So I'll see you back, same place, same time, next week on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs> <laughs>